This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by both Amal Gibran and Stefano Nava. Dr. Gibran is the author of today's article for discussion, Long-Term Outcome After Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation, a Long-Term Acute Care Hospital Study. And Dr. Nava is the author of the accompanying editorial. Dr. Gibran is Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Heinz VA Hospital at Loyola University, and she's a professor of medicine at the same institution. Dr. Nava is Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Sartorsola Hospital in Bologna, Italy, and he's a full-time professor at the University of Bologna. I want to thank both of you for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed reading both the article and the accompanying editorial. Um, I'm going to start off and have you, Dr. Gibran, tell us a little bit about kind of big picture the study that you did, which was a look at 315 patients who were sequentially enrolled in a randomized control trial that you had previously reported, and this was another look at those patients. So could you walk us through a little bit of kind of the, the big picture of the study? Sure. Thanks, Trish. So as you mentioned, in our randomized uh, trial that we did in LTAC patients who required prolonged mechanical ventilation, we found that 45% of the patients were alive one year after discharge. And these survivors are expected to have muscle weakness, but the impact of that muscle weakness on their recovery is unknown. And because the long-term outcome of these patients is perceived as being very poor mm -hmm. and the weaning process so daunting, some patients wonder whether it's even worthwhile to provide prolonged mechanical ventilation. So to address these issues, we followed patients between the time of arrival to the LTAC to one year after discharge and obtained measurements of muscle function and quality of life. We also asked the patients whether they'd be willing to undergo mechanical ventilation again if it was deemed necessary. And what we found is that 54% of the patients were detached from the ventilator at the time of discharge from the LTAC, and 67% were alive one year later. The respiratory muscle strength was well-maintained, but the peripheral muscle strength was severely impaired throughout the hospitalization. And between discharge and six months, the muscle functions improved, and 78% of the patients were able to do their daily activities without assistance. And finally, 85% of the patients were willing to undergo mechanical ventilation again. And that's the summary of the study. And I just want to follow up on a couple things you just said before I invite Dr. Nava into the conversation. Um, just to clarify, the 67% who had one-year survival were the 67% of those patients who were liberated from the ventilator. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Um, and then I, I'm curious, and we'll talk about this more later, that 85% who said they would be willing to basically do it again if they needed to, right? That was essentially what you were Correct. asking them. Um, Correct. Has that been asked before in previous studies? 
uh, not in this patient. It's been asked in patients who are in the ICU for short-term mechanical ventilation for like five days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, majority said, of course, they'd be willing to do it again. Yeah, but this is unique in, in looking at this this patient population. That's what I thought. Yeah, right. So we'll- and these, I mean, these patients have been on the ventilator for an average of 55 to 60 days. Yes, I, definitely a different population than five yeah. days and definitely a population that might feel differently, which is why this is interesting. And I'm going to come back to that. I just wanted to clarify that before we moved on. So Dr. Nava, when you looked at this article and started to think about writing this editorial to accompany it, what did you think was the most kind of interesting or provocative part of Dr. DeBron's article? Yes, uh, thank you. I think the most important uh, point, the study, is the philosophy behind the study. And I try to explain you very briefly what I mean. As clinicians, uh, we all think that prolonged mechanical ventilation is usually associated with uh, poor prognosis in terms not only on survival, but also on quality of life. Well, this may lead us as a clinician to what I call the ethical dilemma about on one side continuing artificial support, but on the other side at the expenses of quality of life. Uh, And this study clearly shows that our perception of the long-term outcome of prolonged mechanical ventilation is totally wrong. First of all, because prolonged mechanical ventilation does not necessarily mean that you need to live for the rest of your life under mechanical ventilation. The second point, interesting point to me, is that most of these patients, at the end of the day, that means when they uh, arrive at home and they were recalled after one year, they were still willing, as you said before, to undergo the same process. That means uh, uh, long-term hospitalization and prolonged mechanical ventilation that, as I said at the beginning, we as a clinician think that is totally unacceptable or at least partly unacceptable. Yeah, I thought that was by far the most interesting part of the article. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize them all, all the muscle measurements that you did because obviously that, there was a lot of rigor in that. But I agree with Stefano that like, I think as clinicians, we often assume what patients will or will not tolerate. And I think there's probably some risk of some bias in the way, you know, in any way of asking people this after they survive all of that. But still, you know, 85% of people saying they'd be willing to do it again, I think probably should give clinicians, it certainly gave me a little bit of pause about what the ways we um, frame discussions about next steps when patients are looking like they're going to need prolonged mechanical ventilation. And I got the sense from your, the way the article was written that, that that was part of what you were hoping to share as a message. Correct. Correct. And I'm happy to hear that Stefano got the really the main aim of the study. And in fact, our mindset when we were doing the study was exactly the part that Stefano picked up is that we normally think these patients, prolonged mechanical ventilation, what are we doing? We're torturing these patients and what for? And that was really the motivation for our study, which I'm happy to see that Dr. Neva got. (laughs) 
Um, uh, I mean, we we didn't. Uh, I mean, uh, we did arrange this call before, so I mean, we are on the same line. Uh, now. Yeah. I mean, I think this yeah. was extremely important uh, paper for this. Uh, uh, main reason. I mean, this, this, uh, I, what I call in the editorial perception versus reality. And this is part of our life, mm -hmm. of everyday life. I mean, not only in medicine. So most of the people, they got perception of the thing that is totally different from reality. And we as a doctor, we behave at the same way that most of the people out in the street, they do it. I, I do want to ask one thing, and I, I'm curious about both your thoughts on this. I, I think that the people who got liberated and survived, we know kind of what their perspective was. It was true, and Amal, you can correct me on any of these numbers because I'm, I'm not gonna be able to cite specific numbers, but the majority of patients who left the LTAC but were still dependent on mechanical ventilation, many of those patients, if not most of those patients, didn't survive. The mortality was quite high in that population. Is that correct? Correct, correct. yes. And I wonder in how fact, you... only 11%, I think, 11% survived. I mean, it's really, it was bad. Right. So perhaps right. there is something there for, additionally for guidance, that if, if we are going to advocate for a model that includes LTAC structured ventilator weaning, which maybe you are going to advocate for or not, I'll let you weigh in on that. There's something to be said that after that time period, if we can't liberate somebody from a ventilator, the prognosis is quite poor. And, and that's another space that would be useful in terms of guiding you know, clinical decision-making and, and discussions with patients and families. Uh, do you agree with that or what are your thoughts on that? So you're saying, is, if I understand you correctly, that if it's the patient is ready to be discharged from the LTAC and we still can't get him off the ventilator, mm -hmm that we would tell the family, look, this patient is, 10% of these patients will be alive a year later. And do you want to go to the next step, which is a nursing home or, you know, make your end of life decision? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that maybe I, oh, I, I think, don't. Yeah. I think I, that is the point. I agree. Yeah, so, uh, so if after, I may. Please. Now, if I may, since I live on the other side of the ocean, I have a different view from you in the sense that uh, we are much less liberal than you are in the U.S. or even in the U.K. Here, especially in the Mediterranean area, um, it is extremely difficult to, uh, to perform a talk like this with the patient and the relatives. Most of the patient and the family are very uh, keen to keep surviving, even at the cost of the poor quality of life. This is uh, a sort of paternalistic view that uh, uh, we may have as a clinician, but also the, I, I keep saying the relatives, because here, one of the big issues is uh, the relative power versus the patient power. Uh, we still live in a, I don't want to enter now in a religious, uh, I would say, uh, in a religious discussion, but here life is what we call is holy life. So interrupting mechanical ventilation, if you think that you don't have a chance, is still a big deal, a big ethical dilemma. 
So it's not as straightforward as probably it is in the United States or in other uh, country, even European country, like the northern country of Europe, Scandinavia, and maybe also in the UK. So you need to consider uh, being the American Journal, Respiratory and Critical Care, an international journal that uh, we have different uh, ethical issues uh, across uh, the different side of the ocean. No, I agree with you, Stefano. The only the the point here is some. It's important to tell the families what are the prognosis, and then it's up to the families to decide. And to be honest with you, I suspect by the time they've survived the LTAC, even though they're still on the ventilator, I would think by they pay, the families would still say keep keep going. We're not going to let go because if they were going to withdraw support, they would have done it maybe sooner. I tend to exactly. agree with you. And then I, yeah, and then I think one thing is uh, avoidance of something, and the other thing is withdrawing something. Withholding and withdrawing, maybe from an ethical point of view, are similar to what I understood from the literature, but uh, emotionally, withdrawing uh, mechanical ventilation is much more demanding that with all the mechanical ventilation. So this is a very complicated issue, very emotional, uh, emotional and important issue. So, I mean, I think we still need to work uh, a lot to improve our knowledge about this problem, I think. I think you're right. I think the point is less that we're gonna be able to tell people this is what you should do, but that this study gives us some numbers to actually use in those conversations to inform decisions, but I tend to agree with Amal completely on this, that if someone's tolerated 50 plus days on a ventilator, they're probably going to continue to try to see what the next steps down the road are going to entail. But I, I don't know, I still, I found that valuable. I mean, I think there's the valuable part saying these patients, the vast majority of them who survived and got off the ventilator said, I would do it again. I think it's also important to say that, you know, more than half of the patients who are in this cohort died and that there's some co some predictors of who's going to do maybe better or worse. Yeah. The, the other uh, if I if I may I want to come back on the problem of uh, uh, what the patient said during the interview. Amal, I don't exactly know how did you interview the patient about uh, if you were willing to repeat what they uh, underwent in the past, but uh, I took the uh, point from this editorial to read a little bit of literature. I read a very interesting paper called Lies in the Doctor-Patient Relationship, and I ended up to understand that between uh, a doctor, a clinician, and a patient uh, in this bi-directional communication, we always uh, face little white lies, as the psychologists call, that, uh, that is that sometimes the patient in an attempt to please the doctor who save at one point in time the life, uh, the, the same patient may minimize his or her symptoms or bad experience. So, I wonder how did you assess the willingness of the patient to repeat this experience? Because this, I think, is also critical and uh, may help us to better understand uh, how was the reaction of the patient to this uh, uh, question. So what we did is at six months, we, the, my research coordinator would go to their house. 
she would interview the patient, she would do her, the measurements, the PI max and the hand grip. Then she would ask the question, and it was a simple thing. And it, this is, I'm quoting it exactly. She would ask, if necessary, would you go through the process of being put on a ventilator and everything that happened afterward again, if it was necessary to save your life? In other words, was it all worth it? Period. That's it. And the patient either would say yes or no. But it wasn't me who was asking. It was my... No, uh, I understand. But yeah, so was so, it sort of dichotomous answer, yes or no, yes right? Yes or no, they, exactly. They were not able to discuss, uh, let's say, the pro and contra, or uh, <laughs> so they, it was basically I mean, they, yes they, or no. They, what we captured is yes or no. Now, some patients were unsure. So it's, it's okay. I think 100 patients said yes, and let me see, and 10 said no, and 8 couldn't tell us. They go, I'm not sure. So, but it was a dichotomous <laughs> thing, you know, and then even so, that was it. And I think that probably okay. minimizes Got some you. of the bias that it was your, your research coordinator who's asking the questions. I mm -hmm. think that there's probably still some risk that people are, there's probably some bias in there, but I, I, I still think there's a strong signal that people said, yeah, this would be something I would yeah. do again. I um, think it's the will to live. Mm-hmm. People will do, that's the one thing I learned from this study myself is, People will do anything to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to comment a little bit on their quality of life, Amal? You alluded to it already, but do you want to talk a little yeah. bit more about the quality so of life? That's uh, the quality of life. It depends what we're, how we're defining it, I guess. If we're using the SF36 you know, as a measure of the quality of life. We found that their quality of, of life by a year out was exactly, was not different from their quality of life beforehand, which was very interesting. The only thing that didn't get back to the pre-illness is their ability to do their ADLs independently. I mean, that was just a little bit worse. It was statistically worse at 12 months. It wasn't back to the baseline. But all in all, the quality of life was back to where it was before they got sick. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and the pre-quality of life was assessed via surrogates for the most part? or Half and half. Okay. Yeah, so we okay. asked, you know, because we asked that question when the patient arrived to the LTAC. And half of the patients on arrival, you know, were too sick or delirious and couldn't answer. So that's why half of them were um, the surrogates. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also interesting to me that, that they're close to where they were, or if not at the place they were beforehand. Now, some of these patients had significant comorbidities and maybe mm -hmm. have the most robust quality of life beforehand, but they're back where they started, which is remarkable. Correct. And probably not what I think most clinicians assume as well. That would be my no, guess. Mine either. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is just a little bit of asking you to hypothesize, because I realize this was not what the study was designed to study, is do you think there's any signals in here about predicting who are going to be those people who are going to get off and have that better outcome? <laughs> um, obviously, you had a, your population was enriched for people who had had a surgical procedure. There were some people who I think got off quicker than others. I, I'm just curious, this again is hypothesis, not what your primary study was designed for. 
I mean, the I'm trying to find it. The I mean, obviously, that's ideal is what you really want to be able to predict on arrival to the LTAC, which patients are going to come off, which aren't. And to me, that would help in terms of the decisions by the family. Because mm-hmm. if you know they're going to come off, you, you know they're going to have a very good outcome. And the we did not do a predictor model, but we looked, again, I don't know how good that will be. I'm just trying to find it. We looked at the patients who were eventually detached from the ones who were eventually attached and looked at, you know, in terms of their measurements on admission. And the big difference we found is that, again, that does mean it's going to predict. We're just looking at, you know, the means between the two groups. Right. Is their uh, respiratory muscle strength, their PI max, was lower in those who remained attached than those who weren't attached. And then the other thing that was big was their their pre-illness physical status their SF36 physical summary score. And it was, again, as you would expect, it was worse mm-hmm. in those who were not than those. And also age. Uh, the age was significant. The older you were, the less, you know, the, the, the age was higher in the ventilator attached group than in the ventilator detached group. Right. Um, and that's yep. it. Interesting. Uh, Amal, let me let me be a little bit provo- provocative with you. Uh, I state also this in the editorial. Now, uh, do you think that these patients that they survive or not uh, in the LATAC, they were maybe already different when they were admitted to the ICU, or there is mm-hmm. something wrong what we do? when we ventilate the patient in the ICU. I mean, it's not only a matter of uh, mode of ventilation. It's a matter of how do you treat the patient with sedation, medical therapy, uh, bundles for uh, uh, prevent infection, uh, delirium. So I wonder, what are your feelings? I know that this is impossible to record, but what is your gut feeling about how bad do we treat sometimes these patients when they are in the ICU so that when they are discharged, a subset of these patients, they are sicker when they come to the LATAC, but they are not sicker when they are admitted for the first time in the ICU. Well, I mean, so if we focus on PI Max, for example, because that's really the one that seemed in the when they arrived at the LTAC that was different, right? Their hand grip was identical right. in the two groups. And it was poor in the two groups. So you can argue right. that point. But the the pro, I mean ideally, which is the problem with ICU studies, is we don't we cannot predict when the patient's gonna have their critical illness. So ideally if we had a PI max beforehand, that would obviously tell us if the problem is the acute illness or is the problem the complications of the critical illness. So we don't have that luxury. The one thing I can tell you is, which to me was incredible, is the PI max at our uh, on the arrival of the LTAC, the average was about 45, I think, mm-hmm. which is identical right. to the PI max we measured in the ICU in the VA. 
when we were doing our weaning study, that was 15. So to me, and even the study from other groups have shown that on day one, they show that the respiratory muscle function is impaired. Now, the question is, is it the, the critical illness that caused it? Or is it where they were they at this function beforehand? So that's I can't tell you that. That I cannot answer that. Yeah, but this is this is an interest. But on the other side, you also show in the in the randomized control trial, but also in this study, that around the 40% of the patient can be. That was another very interesting point of the study. Could be liberated from mechanical ventilation after the first weaning attempt. I can understand why, but I would like you to comment on this. Sure. Why and on your first winning attempt, you could liberate such huge number of patients, at yeah. least more than one out of three? I think what, and in fact, if we're going, one of the take-home messages from this study is what I'm about to say. The problem is, is again, the our mindset, our mindset being us, the clinicians. So what happens is in the ICU, a patient who wean right away, no problem. Those who, re who continue to fail weaning, what do we do? At least in the U.S., we said, okay, we don't have, we, it's time to think about transferring to an LTAC or a weaning facility. But that takes a couple of, couple of weeks, right? Sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. So what do we do? We give up. We don't even try to wean these patients. And so that, to me, explains why as soon in, in our first study, which I agree with you, Stefano, that was one of my big surprises. We could not randomize these patients because they weaned as all we did as soon as they arrived to the LTAC, we put them on a tray color and let them go. One third of them left, went without any problem. So it has to be that, that we as physicians were not doing our job right. We just gave up on these patients. And I think that is the big message from all this, all that data we have from the LTAC is we need to aggressively wean these patients, even the ones who we think who, you know, who failed weaning because we show if you eventually wean them off, they're going to do great. And half of these that we have deemed as unweanable wean. Yeah, I was struck by that. Stefano highlighted in his editorial and I was struck by it as well that it's remarkable that there's a bunch of people that you just try once, put them on tray collar, and the patient does fine. It reminds me of the old studies where we compared different strategies for weaning from the ventilator in acute respiratory failure, and a large portion of them got extubated right away. So it's the same kind of thing where we need to yeah. push ourselves. And I think we need to do a trach trials, a trach collar trials or TP's yeah. trial, because this way you can actually see what the patient is doing and rather than doing like pressure support where it kind of hides patient's capability. Right. And, and that's what your other study proved. Right. right? Is that yeah. that's the way to do it. Yeah. Um, we just but need yeah. to be more aggressive in our weaning in the ICU. That's where I think... Uh, that's the only explanation why a third of these patients, as soon as they arrive, we didn't do anything magic to them. <laughs> We'd like right? to be magical. Like we did nothing. <laughs> well, I think it, I think you yeah, said it. Yeah. I think we give up. I think at, at yeah. some point we say, oh, this patient's queued up to go to an LTAC, and we stop engaging in the same way, and that is not right, and we need to. No. Your, your data says, hey, this is happening. We all need to be attentive to it, and I'm glad that Stefano highlighted that. Um, 
our time is, is growing short. I want to make sure that I hear from both of you one more time. Uh, Stefano, I, I don't know if you had any other questions you wanted to ask uh, Amal, or if you wanted to share any other things that you thought were really powerful messages from, from your reading of the article and or putting together your editorial. No, I just, uh, I just have a curiosity about uh, the, the, the uh, respiratory muscle strength. I mean, I agree with you that it's an extremely important uh, variable, but on the other side, force is not all. It depends also how hard this patient needs to breathe. In other words, uh, you only see one part uh, of the picture that is the capacity of the system, but you do not have any clue of the load. So uh, can you comment, please, on that? Because sure. uh, usually it's the load capacity rather than the force itself. A force, is, as I said, is important, but yeah. it's also the, the whole picture that probably counts even more. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at our data, the PI max does not change in, in either group, whether the ventilator attached or ventilator detached patient. But the ventilator detached patient come off the ventilator, so something is getting better. If it's not the muscles, it has to be the load. Mm -hmm. So because it's either the lung parenchyma or is it the lung muscle? And I suspect is the load is getting better, and that's why they come off. But like you said in the editorial, we didn't, you know, we didn't measure the load in this study. But I mean, we've done it in our right. previous studies. But I do believe it's, I can't prove it, but it's most likely the load improved. And plus cardiac, and you know, you know, these patients have cardiac oh, yes, issues. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's multifactorial. It always saying it's not respiratory muscle strength as measured by PI max. That doesn't mean, you know, all the other stuff are not important, obviously. And um, any comment on the psychological issue? Since you are an expert, do you think that this patient <laughs> also get really less anxious or, or is uh, it's because they move to it? The yeah. psychological issues, like in terms of the mental state of the, I mean, again, all we measured in these guys is the SF36 mental. And that really gets back to normal right away. So it's not really impaired in terms of their mental quality of life. Now, obviously, whether they got PTSD, you know, we showed before that about 15% of these patients get PTSD afterwards, but, you know, we didn't assess that in this study. But I think their mental state, it gets better as they get, as they improve. Which would make sense, right? Which would make can, sense, yeah. Yeah, as you make sense, yes. Yeah. Quality of life. Um, Amal, stuff. Yeah. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Amal. I want to make sure that if you have any other messages you want to give our listeners before I close, uh, I'll give you the last the last word, so to speak, on kind of take homes from from the study. Wean the patients aggressively. <laughs> Do not forget those patients in the ICU. Just keep weaning aggressively. Don't give up on these patients. You heard it from the source, don't give up on the patients. And I think that was honestly a lot of the message of, of both pieces. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with both of you today. I'll encourage our listeners that if they wanna read the article and the editorials that were discussed in this podcast, they can visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. If you wanna to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks to everybody for listening and have a great day.